Please uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. This isn't the first time this has happened, and it's not the last time, that between doing the bulletin on Wednesday and getting here on Sunday, things can change, and so things have changed a bit. And I want to have you look with me at Acts chapter 6, and I'll read this passage and then um, give you a feel for why it is that we're looking at this passage uh, instead of the passage in 1 Timothy. So Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 and then reading through verse 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists that is the Greek-speaking and uh, culturally uh, influenced Jewish people, the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And this is God's word. And let me pray for us that he will give us um, grace to understand it. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for this trajectory uh, that you have set for us in your own word and in the creation of the world, that word and spirit come together and powerful things happen. And so somehow in the foolishness of preaching, uh, by the agency of your spirit, would you cause things to happen here in our hearts uh, to the praise of your glorious name and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We, uh, we're in the process of nominating and then approving nominees for uh, the office uh, of deacon and those nominees who are um, then approved by uh, the elders, the session of the church to be presented uh, to the congregation for election, for your confirmation. Um, we're, we're in that process, and it'll culminate in that election in, in a couple of weeks. And as I've thought about this and talked with Zach and Glenn about it, it seemed like a good idea to spend a couple of weeks um, talking about um, this whole matter. We looked last week at uh, 1 Timothy 3 and qualifications, we read through them. Um, I had one of our deacons come up to me afterwards uh, and say, I think I need to resign. 
And uh, I will tell you that I feel the same way, right? Um, it, is a, it is a very high standard, which the scriptures set for us, but, um, but it is there in the scriptures. And again, what we said last week, we said a number of things that um, we seek here at Christ the King in everything that we do. We seek to understand what God has said. We, we seek to submit to his word. That's the first thing. And, and then I tried to outline for you how this process works, that Christ stands behind this process, that he as the king and the head of his church, uh, he as the source of its very existence, is the one ultimately who, uh, who calls and who uh, equips and who qualifies people to serve in these offices. Jesus stands behind this thing. Um, You'll remember I said the church is not a democracy, okay? Uh, When we elect, we don't so much elect as we confirm. We confirm what Jesus is doing as he puts the desire in the hearts of men and then equips them, prepares them, calls them. The church confirms that. So elections here really are not democratic things. We're not electing representatives the way we do in our democracy, except in the sense that we as a congregation are confirming the call of God upon particular people who will then represent the interests of Jesus. And if you remember the math, if you remember the logic of this thing, when these people serve the interests of Jesus, they are in fact serving your interests because Jesus really does care about you frankly, cares more about you than you care about yourself. He knows what is in your best interest. And so in giving leaders to the church, those who will seek his interests, Jesus through those leaders is actually seeking what is in your best interests. And he is the king and head of the church is behind this whole thing. And he's doing it uh, for the well-being of his people um, and for his church. So what we want to do today, what we want to think about today, is the distinction that there is in these offices. Having thought some about qualifications and how this whole process works, we want to to look at these two offices. And and what I want to do, actually, and I'm just going to ask you to stick with me over the course of the next number of minutes, we're going to end up at Acts chapter 6. But we're going to start in a different place. And the reason we're going to start in a different place Um, again, has to do with Jesus. Um, It is Jesus who said, as the source and head of his church, it is Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. Jesus is the one who is building his church. Jesus is the one who is the ultimate protector and defender of his church. And Jesus actually is the perfect elder deacon. And what I really want us to do is ground these ideas, these offices of elder and deacon, in fact, in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect elder. Jesus is the perfect overseer or bishop. And Jesus is 
the perfect deacon. Just to give you general sorts of descriptions for what elders and deacons do and are responsible for, elders are responsible for oversight and deacons are called alongside to marshal the resources of a local church for ministry, to meet needs. And that's what we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 6. But the first thing that I want for us to recognize, and this is an important thing, I say this fairly often, there are lots of important things. An Irishman is leading the masters for heaven's sake. That's an important thing. But there are some things that are of passing importance, and there are other things that are of permanent and eternal importance and significance. And this is the first one. This is a thing that we don't want to forget. We want to understand that these offices of elder and deacon, overseer and servant, these two offices find their highest and perfect expression in Jesus himself. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2, verse 25. Just make a note of this. I'll read it for you. Peter writes this. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Where are we in the church year? We're just... We're just a week away from Holy Week. We're just a week away from Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday. Why is Good Friday Good Friday? See, Good Friday is Good Friday for God's people because it was on Good Friday that Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree. And what ultimately makes Good Friday Good Friday is that just hours after Good Friday, Jesus rose again. He was alive again. He was seen and he, and he ate breakfast and he was embraced. He was, he was held and handled, John says in his first letter, by his disciples over the course of 40 days. He was victorious over sin and death. We're headed into this time of incredible celebration. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, says we've made a great mistake in the church. We make a huge deal of Christmas. We, We make a huge deal of Advent and Christmas. Why is that? Because... I think, frankly, because we want to be at the center of Christmas, because we want to be the ones receiving gifts. We make a huge and appropriate deal of Christmas, but we have narrowed down and diminished the hugeness of Good Friday and Resurrection Day. The big celebration should be this coming week. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You've returned to the shepherd and bishop, the overseer, 
of your souls. There's a couple of words in the New Testament that describe elders, that refer to elders. One of them is the word presbyteros. It, it means elder. It refers to the older, wiser, mature, recognized, godly leaders of communities. There were elders all across the Old Testament. They were the ones who sat in the city gates and deliberated for the benefit and well-being of the whole town, the whole village. And there's another word, episkopos. It's a word that will be familiar to some of you. It gives us our word episcopal. And it's a word sometimes translated bishop It means overseer, and it means to look over. It comes over into our language, or a part of the word comes over into our language in the form of microscope or telescope, episcopos, one who looks over, who oversees. And in this case, it's the church. It's the word that you find in 1 Timothy 3.1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now go back to 1 Peter and notice the connection. Notice the connection that Jesus makes between overseer and shepherd. You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is your overseer. But second, he is your deacon. He is not only your overseer, he is also your deacon. I want you to listen to a passage. It's a passage you probably know, you have familiarity with. It's Matthew 20. <clears throat> Verses 20 to 28. It's actually a rather embarrassing passage when you read it and when you recognize what it is that comes immediately after it and then when you recognize what it is that comes immediately after what comes immediately after it into chapter 21. You know this story. It's, it's the request of the mother of James and John James and John, who aspire, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but James and John, who aspire to places, to places of prominence in the kingdom of God. James and John, who want to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus and who, who put their mother out there, Mom, go ask Jesus if he'll do this for us when he comes in his kingdom. And the mother who is complicit, who's complicit in this strategizing for the accumulation of power and prestige and prominence, just like any mom who wants the best for her kids. Mom goes to Jesus and says, I have a favor, I have a question for you. Would you place my sons on either side of you when you come in your kingdom and are seated upon your throne? And Jesus, in effect, says, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. If they can drink 
the cup of the Father's wrath. If they can drink the cup of the Father's wrath, if they can suffer the cross, then they can sit with me on my right hand and on my left. And they, of course, say, no problem. No problem. And then Jesus, as he responds to his disciples, says this, verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your deacon. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who would ever be first among you must be your slave, your bondservant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the word in the text, the same word from which we get our word deacon. Jesus says, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to have people wait on me. I didn't have come, come to have people serve me. I came to serve and to give my life to die to myself, to abandon all rights and privileges and power and prestige and prominence. I laid all of that aside. What is a deacon? A deacon is one who lays all of that aside, dies to himself, lays down his life, emulating Jesus in the service of God's people. Still interested? And I want you to notice too in this text that Jesus connects servant or deacon with slave. With slave. Servant. Slave. Overseer. Shepherd. Folks, do you I'm I'm reasonably sure that you, at least a lot of you, are aware of this. Do you know what the two most despised classes of people were in Jewish culture? You got it. Shepherds and slaves. Overseers, shepherds, deacons, slaves. And who is the great overseer, deacon of your souls? Jesus, the king and head of the church, who abandoned everything and laid aside all right and privilege that he might deacon you to the point of death on a cross, that the day would come when he would be raised from that death to be elevated and lifted up to the Father's right hand so that yet another day would come 
when he would be exalted above every name and every knee would bow and every tongue would confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, Paul dealt with this. Pastors of churches have dealt with this across the life of the church, across the history of the church. I've had to deal with this. There isn't, there isn't an officer in this church who is perfect, okay? I hope you understand that. I hope you're clear about that. Your pastor needs the grace of God and Jesus Christ much more desperately and much more clearly today than he did when he became a Christian 40 years ago. The elders and deacons of this church need the grace of God and Jesus Christ infinitely more than they ever knew or could have imagined when they became Christians years ago. Whoever it is who's nominated and placed before you to be elected as deacons in this church need the grace of Jesus Christ desperately every moment of their days. But across the history of the church and in my own experience, I have had to deal with elders and deacons who did not understand, who did not understand that these offices require a degree of self-abandonment and death to self that looks at least a little bit like the death of Jesus. I've had to deal with elders who want power, who want control, who want to control me, who want to control the gospel, and who have lost sight of the fact that leadership in the church of Jesus Christ in the first instance means emulating Jesus, the overseer deacon who died to himself to serve his church. And that's the first thing. What do these offices look like? In some small, imperfect way, by the grace of God, I pray increasingly these offices of elder and deacon will look more and more like Jesus. Because he's the elder. He's the deacon. Now here's the second thing. How does Jesus do this? How is Jesus shepherd bishop and servant deacon? Let me give you a summary statement. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's that wonderful passage where after the resurrection, in fact, on the very day of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus meets these two disciples as they're making their way along from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and their hearts are broken, and they are downcast and disappointed and deeply discouraged. And this man approaches them on the road, and they don't know it because, verse 16 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him, but it was Jesus. And he asks them about the conversation that that they're having with each other as they walk. And they stood still, verse 17, they stood still looking sad, and then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only person in the whole city of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on here? 
Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these last days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Mighty in deed and word before all the people. If you want a summary of the ministry of Jesus, that is a summary of the ministry of Jesus. Word and deed, deed and word. When Jesus came, if you read any of the Gospels, he came heralding, proclaiming the Gospel. He came proclaiming the good news. He took disciples up on a mountain, and in the Sermon of the Mount, he taught them about the kingdom. He taught them about the citizens of the kingdom. He heralded and proclaimed the glad tidings of the kingdom. He was a preacher. He went from village village to village and town to town, heralding the glad tidings. He stood in the temple in Jerusalem in John chapter 7 and said, Anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He himself is the incarnation of the reality of the kingdom. He doesn't just talk about it. He is it. He is the kingdom. And he preached it and he proclaimed it. And then Jesus... Jesus engaged in ministry to people. He took lepers in his hands. He touched a woman who had a flow of blood. She'd suffered at the hands of many physicians. And he touched her. He embraced her. And he restored her. He freed demoniacs from oppression. He freed legion from the power of darkness and of evil. Word and deed. The gospel of the kingdom proclaimed. And the gospel of the kingdom performed. Jesus, the overseer, the bishop, the one who heralds and proclaims and teaches. Jesus, the deacon, the one who takes the broken in his arms takes them into his embrace, loves them, touches them, and seeks to minister to them. Jesus, mighty in word and in deed. And here's the interesting and striking thing. And again, this is just a summary of the ministry of Jesus, but read through the Gospels and you see it. The king arrives, the one who is promised, beginning all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15, the one who is promised, who will eradicate evil, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will restore things and make things right. He comes, he proclaims this kingdom, he heals the sick, he feeds the hungry, word and deed. And here's the striking thing. Jesus, the shepherd bishop, Jesus, the servant deacon, continues that ministry in the church. He continues that ministry in the church. We talked about this in the Sunday school class this morning. I gave them a heads up. You who were there, you can take a short nap, about 90 seconds. It's a striking passage that you see, Acts chapter 1. 
when Luke writes at the beginning of this, his second book, his first book addressed to the same person, Theophilus, is his gospel, the gospel of Luke. The second book addressed to the same Theophilus. He says in this first verse, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus, listen to this, I love this, it's so significant. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Do you catch that language? It's important language. Book one is what Jesus began to do. Book two is what Jesus continues to do. Maybe your Bible's right up there at the top of this first chapter of, of the book of Acts. Maybe your Bibles have this this title for this book, The Acts of the Apostles. Wrong. The Acts of Jesus. This book is about what Jesus continues both to do and to teach. Jesus continues to herald the presence of the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom. Jesus continues to summon people to repentance and faith, to trust in Him, to be incorporated into this new kingdom. How does He do it? He does it in the church and through the church. And what is the significance of Pentecost? The significance of Pentecost, again, I said this to the class this morning, the significance of Pentecost is that Pentecost is that day, that moment, when Jesus pours out the Spirit of Himself upon the church to indwell the church and to empower the church so that He, in the midst of the church, through the church, continues to herald the glad tidings of the kingdom, to summon people to repentance and faith, to be incorporated into His kingdom, so that He, through the church, might continue to minister to His people, the objects of His love and affection, the objects of His tender care, word and deed, proclamation and performance. The proclamation of the gospel and the performing, the living, the reality of the gospel. So Jesus continues to do this work in the midst of the church. So reading something this last week, it, it was really very striking to me. You know, the, the Bible does describe the church as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Where is Christ in the world? Right here. We, you know, we, we, we get sort of dismissive of these, these metaphors, these pictures, these truths that Jesus himself conveys to us. Where is The body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Where is the presence of Jesus? Where can you touch it? Where can you feel it? Where can you see it? Where can you smell it? Here. 
We are connected to Jesus, the risen, ascended, ruling and reigning King of glory. And we are connected to Him by His Spirit. As I said to the class, the Spirit is not a free agent. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We don't divide up the Trinity. The Trinity, there is an essential unity among the persons of the Godhead. But in the mystery of their functioning, it is Jesus Himself by His Spirit who indwells the church and empowers the church so that He might continue His ministry. Ministry of word and ministry of deed. And so that brings us to Acts chapter 6. And what do you see in Acts chapter 6? You see apostles and you see the seven. And what functions do you see in Acts chapter 6? You see the apostle saying, look, we can't, this is a need. It's a real need. There is a ministry need here. It needs to be addressed. But we cannot abandon what is central to our calling, the ministry of the word and prayer. We cannot sacrifice these things. We cannot give these things up. And so they appeal to the congregation, identify some mature, godly, spirit-filled men, and we will appoint them to this duty. That means we will set them over this, charge them with responsibility for figuring out a way to get this thing done. But we have to devote ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer. Apostles and the seven. The way we understand things in this church as Presbyterians is that the responsibility of apostles, which has to do with the word of God and prayer, those responsibilities devolve upon the overseers, the bishops, just as they did in Jesus' ministry. He was the bishop. He was the overseer. But where the two offices converged in the one elder deacon, The offices are separated in the church. Elders have this responsibility and deacons then have the responsibility to come alongside and I'll suggest to you just in broad brushstrokes that their responsibility is to come alongside and marshal the resources of the church for the meeting of needs in the life of the church. And even beyond the church, just as the gospel is heralded, the word of God is proclaimed beyond this place out into the community, there will be those occasions when ministries arise to which we can respond and which deacons will oversee and execute. Two offices in Jesus, fully, perfectly expressed in Jesus, Divided in the church, word and deed. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, And I'm going to share just a little bit of history. I've been, if you know this, say this periodically, I've been in ministry for over 30 years. And over the course of the last three decades... This is the history first. 
Over the course of the last three decades, there has been extraordinary pressure exerted from the surrounding culture through indiscriminating, non-discriminating leaders, organizations, institutions. Extraordinary pressure exerted upon pastors to become managers, to become CEOs, to understand spreadsheets and five-year plans, to be vision casters. And I will tell you the effect of that. The effect of that is that the gospel in this culture is being gutted. It's being robbed and it's being stolen away from God's people. Now, here's the story. I was teaching at the refuge this last Friday morning, as I have for the last four years. I can't believe they keep me around, but they do. And we've been studying Ephesians and we got to a place in Ephesians where there's a particular verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that uses the language of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And it's a verse that's terribly misunderstood among evangelical people. And so I was drilling down into the significance of the words and the tenses of the verbs and was sharing with them that there's a tense in the aorist that, or in the Greek that doesn't come over so easily into the English. And it's the aorist tense. And it points to something in the, in the past but it really doesn't have reference to time. The force of it more is that it's a punctiliar thing. It's an action. It's a specific event. It's a thing that's done. And then we're sharing something about a present present participle that's later in the verse and how that's different from what Paul has said earlier. And this little girl over in the corner just shakes her head and smiles and says, what were you, an English major or something? And I said, no. This is my job. And this is what you need. And the reason there is so much confusion in the church, and the reason there is so much lack of substance in the church, is because pastors are being seduced away from this to do other things. Because the culture is telling them they're more important. The elders of this church, myself included, are responsible for preserving the integrity not only of the teaching of Scripture, but ensuring that it is heralded. And the deacons come alongside as selfless, dying-to-self men who take up the privileged responsibility of marshalling the resources of the church to meet needs so that this isn't compromised. That's what we're about in this process of nominating, vetting, if you will, presenting, and confirming future deacons to be added to our diaconate. I said to you last week, By God's grace and because God is good, we're at the very place where they were in Acts chapter 6. The number of disciples in this humble church is increasing. And because the number of disciples in this humble church is increasing, we need 
more deacons. Someday we're going to need more elders. Somebody's going to ask me about that. I'll give you an answer. It's going to come. It's going to happen. But right now, what we need is more deacons. That's what elders do. That's what deacons do. And I beg of you, I beg of you that you plead with God for grace for me and for these officers to fulfill these responsibilities. It's in your best interest that you do so. I've I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it until the day I die. Please don't put me on a pedestal. Please don't put them on a pedestal. Please be patient. Please extend to us the grace of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, we need it. But pray that God would give us all grace to fulfill these roles gladly, gladly to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together and come to the Lord's table. I'm sorry it's so late. I'm sorry, I guess. I don't know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need for you to come to us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to lead us. We need your grace to empower us. We need you to be among us to such a great extent. Weak and frail, silly, foolish, distracted though we are, somehow your glory would be put on display here. So humbly we come before you and ask you for that grace. In the name of Jesus, the bishop and deacon of our souls. And be with us as we come to this table, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.